We've been waiting for it for months, but tennis is back. We're underway in the Ladies' Open in Palermo in Italy. Big results last night, but also... How long do we have tennis back for? That's the big question, with rumours that the Madrid Open could imminently cancel its 2020 edition. Plenty to get through today on Breakpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Val Febo. Joel Ferrucci joins me on the other line. Joel, how are you going? Yeah, I'm going okay, Val, considering uh, we're in uh, currently the uh, Democratic People's Republic of Melbourne. Uh, we, can't, uh, <laughs> we can't do a single thing, um, and uh, we also have a curfew in place, so going as... Uh, going as well as can be. But so how about you, mate? How are you finding the whole situation? I'm all right, but did you get the urge uh, when the when the first, well, when stage four restrictions were announced? We're not So for those listening outside of Melbourne, we're not allowed to leave the house after 8 a.m. and uh, before 5 a.m. So between 8 a.m. and 5, uh, 8 p.m. and 5 a.m., not allowed to leave the house. I had the sudden urge to go for a drive to the petrol station to get chips at 11.21 p.m. I didn't, and I won't, but... You know, it's it's you know when you're told not to do something, you immediately want to do it. So the good thing is, Joel, you said we can't do anything. We can do Breakpoint. We have a huge, huge, That's huge true. show today. And I was I was lucky enough last week to sit down with Mark Woodford and and chat with the legendary doubles star um, about his career and his thoughts on on a few things. And he had some great things to say. And I was just sitting there like jaw jaw dropped, drool coming down my mouth just because of the thing. <laughs> The things that Starstruck. he was, the things that he was talking about, were just unbelievable. It's so, it's still a surreal experience to sit in front of someone and have him talk to you about a time he played against Ivan Lendl, and you'll hear all about that on the on the chat later on. But we should get it. It is a fairly long chat, so we should get into into the the crux of um of the news. And Palermo kicked off uh, this weekend or last night, I should say, Melbourne time, and um, there were some big results. Um, Christina Pliskova with a big win over Maria Sakari, 6-4, 6-4. Diana Yastrzemska, pretty controversial COVID pandemic for her. She's through over Soribes <laughs> Tormo. Uh, and how about this, Joel? Hometown hero Jasmine Paolini defeating Daria Kasatkina, 5-7, 6-4, 6-4. An unbelievable win. The reaction was pretty massive. Three hours and nine minutes, Joel. Yeah, huge, huge, great win for her. And um, tell you what, Val, it's uh, it was the kind of opening day that really made you realise why we miss tennis, especially yep. the WTA in particular. A big day of upsets, un- unpredictable results. Um, yeah, and uh, obviously some of the seeds have already started to, to fall. Certainly didn't expect Marie Sakari to go down um, on the opening day, but some. Um, yeah, look, just uh, just great to have the have the tennis back. But as you said in the intro, um, we have to sort of question for how long um and unfortunately as much as we want to talk about the results that actually occurred um that happened overnight unfortunately it's probably not really the the big story um of the week as much as we want to talk about the actual tennis the the big news is really still what's going on behind the scenes and um really just how long the calendar the restart can can last because uh, there's been some news this week that um, Madrid is on the brink of cancellation. Um, there's been a lot of uh, reports swirling, especially in the last couple of days, um, uh, that the, the tournament will be cancelled imminently. Yep. Of course, at the time of recording, no confirmation yet, official confirmation, but it does uh, sound imminent. And, um, well, when uh, when the tournament organisers have to consult the, um, the Spanish Department of Health or whatever it was, the health advisory and uh, the... Uh, uh, official feedback is that you shouldn't stage the tournament. Well, that's, uh, for me, anyway, that's about as good as cancellation, I would call it. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, if if Madrid don't cancel the tournament, I think it would be one of the more highly irresponsible things a tournament director has done, and um, it'd be disappointing. Um, Feliciano Lopez is obviously a very well loved member of the tennis community. Um, and yeah, it'd be it'd be disappointing if they ignored the the health department's advice. I, I don't think they will. Um, you know, from from all the reports that we've seen, it does look like the tournament will be cancelled, and and then. That leads to the snowball effect. What does that mean for Rome? What does that mean for Roland Garros? What does that mean for even the US Open in Cincinnati? They still want to go full steam ahead despite the withdrawal of Ash Barty, despite the withdrawal of Nick Kyrgios. Players from a fair way away from America will not want to go. And Simona Halep is still on the entry list, um, which is funny because yes, I, right. thought that she'd, I thought that she was out. So she's on the entry Good list luck. for the US Open. Um, and yeah, so she could have withdrawn. I think she still will make a withdrawal, um, from that tournament from, from all the reports that we've read, surely. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's a very, it's a very interesting situation. And, um, yeah, I I think Madrid must go now. Roland Garros, they still want to play in front of crowds. They haven't confirmed that there will be no crowds yet. That needs to come very soon. If they're going ahead, they can't play with crowds. They cannot. But the U.S. Open is the one. Washington's already been cancelled. The, the numbers in America are still so high. How can this tournament go ahead, Joel? I, I don't understand. The players have all been left in the lurch by this. Um, Kirsten Flipkins tweeted it. Maria Sakari tweeted it that the U.S. Open, the USDA should have made the official announcement last week, and it hasn't happened yet. We said it on the show that it needed to be that it needs to happen no later than the end of July, and we're on the fourth of August now. Warren. Yeah, well, um, yeah, it's well, it's it's ten days. It's ten days until uh, the the men are uh, up and going. But um, look, it's it's yeah, I, I, I just cannot understand how nothing's been said yet. Um, because you know, not only obviously the players want certainty, but um, obviously one of the consequences of, of the pandemic at the moment is that there's just such a logistical headache when it comes to to travel and those sorts of things. So it's going to be a real rush um, for the players to actually sort themselves out and not only themselves, obviously, but their, um, their support staff uh, as, as well. But, um, you know, talking of, uh, of trends and and safety, it it just, it seems like, um, you know, obviously we had this, this, this phase where a lot of countries, including where we are in Australia started reopening, but um, the actual virus itself has, has really, you know, made its, Resurgence, if you like, um, yeah, and it's it's just kind of showing that, um, you know, we, as much as we can suppress it, um, unfortunately, it's found its way, uh, it's found its way back, and um, it's it's making uh, it's causing some real problems for, for tennis. And um, I think I saw Nick, Nick McCarville tweeted um, this morning. He actually suggested that potentially, if um, if tennis wants to keep moving forward, what might have to happen is that we might have to actually figure out some sort of um, you know, bubble situation, which obviously they're already trying to do, but without the international travel, yeah. Because that, unfortunately, that is the biggest sticking point at the moment: travel between um, between countries. And um, you know, it's 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 hard to see how how it can practically go ahead because um, you know the the situation is just so fast paced and and changing between different countries. Yeah, I know. So yeah, Nick McCarvel, I did I did see that tweet this morning as well. So it wouldn't be a bad idea. So look. You never know. Um, depending on what happens for the rest of the season, we, we might see something like that. And depending on what happens with COVID, it's kind of an, 
kind of an enigma really you don't really know what it's going to reveal from one day to another and you know one day it could reveal a lot of reveal a lot of deaths one day it might reveal none or one day there just might be a lot of cases and the next day there might not be many so um yeah it's 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 very interesting and um I'm, I'm really not sure what to expect but the entry lists are in at the moment and Djokovic and Nadal both look as though like both look like they're gonna go to America um Sophia Kennan Carolina Pliskova um also heading over so yeah it's it's looking like most of the players will go but Joel I it's got to be I we've been saying it for months needs it, it can't co- I don't know I'm getting angry <laughs> I'm getting really angry but um yeah I, I think Big respect, as Ali G would say. That did not sound good at all. But um, <laughs> uh, to Ash Barty and Nick Kyrgios for announcing the, their withdrawals from the tournament. I think Barty looked as though she was always going to do it. Nick Kyrgios will get to a bit later in the show. We've got a special segment dedicated to that. But um, yeah, I think Ash Barty for the world number one not to go to a tournament. That took a lot of courage and a lot of balls mm-hmm. to make that decision. And um, yeah, that was I, I I really I really admire her for that. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I think you'd probably have to call it leadership as well because yeah, I think it's I think it's um yeah, it's probably a decision that I reckon a lot of players don't want to make, unfortunately. Yeah. But um, the fact that the number one has made that decision, um, I think really, and we know Ash is a great character, but I think yeah. it speaks volumes about um, you know how she how she treats these kind of these kind of issues, and um, you know really puts always uh, the most important thing. Uh, above everything else. Yep, exactly right. Nash Barty, what a wonderful custodian of tennis that she is. Should we get to another wonderful custodian of tennis, Joel, in Mark Woodford? Yeah, definitely. I'm so keen to hear this, Val. Our very special guest on today's show is a man who is an absolute legend of the doubles game. He's a former world number one, 12 men's doubles grand slams and five in mixed. He's won the career slam in both, tour finals winner, Olympic gold medalist, silver medalist, Davis Cup and a Grand Slam winner in three different decades. And not to mention his singles career was pretty damn good as well. His name is Mark Woodford. Mark, how are you going? That is one of the most impressive CVs I've, I've ever had the chance of speaking to and ever ever seen, really. How are you going? Thanks for joining us. I'm good. It's good, good to see you. I know it's been a, a bit of a, a, a bit of a period of time there since we've laid our eyes and been able to, you know, say hi. But, at, uh, yeah, doing okay. It's a, it is a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, some of, some of those trophies are actually uh, I know. You know, just behind me in my um, uh, in, in my office here in the house. Um, oh, it's it's absolutely amazing, and and we'll get into some of those. But um, first things first, I just want to ask. I guess um, America's you're living over in the Californian desert, and America's kind of been yep. a bit of an epicenter for COVID nineteen. So just um, just a quick one. How how's it all been going over there, and um, how how have you and the family fared? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, look. No doubt, we're living in a, a crazy world right now. Um, my, my last trip, uh, I, I came back on March uh, March ninth, I think it was. I had a, a board meeting um, uh, over in Lausanne at the IOC headquarters. Was there for a week, um, and that was that was right on on the eve of the Indian Wells tournament, which is you know just up the road, ten minutes away from me, which is why you know basically I'm here in in the desert. Um, uh, what attracted me uh, to, to live here, and uh, just since coming back from that trip, uh, I, you know, I haven't been anywhere. I mean, California uh, went into lockdown. Um, I, 
I, I actually did quarantine myself when I came back from the trip because I, I'd been in some high risk. Um, you know, Switzerland was was on a list that the US had published as um, as a as a risk. Um, and I'd been on in airports. Um, I, I'd been on airplanes. So I on on advice at the time, and this was again, this is in the very early stages of COVID. Um, the doctor here locally had said, "Look, you should quarantine." So I moved in, went, you know, kind of arrived from the airport. I took an Uber from the airport to the house. I didn't want my wife or kids picking me up, um, and and literally went straight into our guest room here, um, and and I did about nine, ten days. Wow! Um, and at, at the time. Um, you know, wasn't showing symptoms at all, um, but it gave me a chance to really just um, sleep off jet lag. Um, yep. You know, my wife was uh, and the girls they they would come in, drop drop some meals just at the the door for me. Um, sometimes they'd venture in, covering their mouth, and <laughs> um, but uh, I, I came out uh, from quarantining in our house to literally quarantining full stop because their shelter in place orders had been given um, the governor of California. So literally, um, you know, like I live in a country club here, it, that shut down. There was no tennis. There was no golf. Um, every activity was shut. Um, you were, you were made to feel that it was, you know, it was, you couldn't really go outside. And wow. I mean, we, we live in a beautiful part of the, the world here. I mean, in the desert, I mean, we have a, a, a big property, so at least we could go out into the yard yep. um, and breathe fresh air. We could walk around, but uh, it, it was difficult at first. And then, of course, things started to ease. Uh, that Everyone was trying to flatten the curve, and, um, you, you know, things started to open up. And I, I probably like a lot of other people that are going through this right now, you, you know, to, to, you really treasure those moments that you get to spend yep. with your family, uh, with with fr some friends, uh, obviously you, you want to understand and, and learn w where they've been, who they're interacting with. But you, you know, to be out walking, um, I never I never thought I'd say what a joy walking is <laughs> in the evenings. But oh, I try to do that every other night for for forty five minutes to an hour. Um, you know, to to be outside playing a bit of tennis, to be playing golf, those moments whilst work has probably shrunk. Um, just the physical activity is being important. And uh, um, I think here in the desert is a little haven. We haven't been, you know, um, badly struck by COVID. There, um, uh, but, of course, there's been a spike in cases. Um, but the death rate is, has, uh, you know, steadied, so which, which is important. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that's the same in Melbourne as well, where, where I am. And yeah, we've, we've had a lot of new cases today. But, um, you know, we just have to push on and everybody's got to work together yeah. and make sure that we're okay. But we'll move on to the onto the tennis career, the illustrious tennis career. And um, it's it, seriously, it's it's one of the greatest um, doubles careers that I've ever seen. And the, it's the greatest ever, really, and the greatest ever partnership. But we'll talk about sort of the singles and doubles first. Now you finished, yep. and I don't know if you know this, but you finished in the top hundred of singles and doubles in the same year on 10 occasions, which is one of, which is no easy feat compared because considering a lot of players play one or the other format, it's very rare they play both at the moment or yep. full time. So talk us through sort of what the aspirations were at the start. Was it to be, was it a prominent singles player? When, when did the doubles dream sort of turn into a reality? Uh, I, I, I don't think the doubles the, the doubles uh, dream ever really materialised. Uh, it, it was 
it was to be a tennis player. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, educated very early on, coached, uh, whether it was, you know, starting out with my dad um, to one or two other coaches in, in Adelaide uh, to, to, you know, first traveling um, overseas and my first coach, it was always about being a tennis player yeah. and a tennis player meant singles was number one, the priority. Doubles came in second and four times a year you got to play mixed doubles at, at the Grand Slams and, you know, with the idea that if you won a, if you won a mixed doubles event before you won a men's doubles or a singles slam, you still had the right to call yourself a Grand Slam champion mm -hmm. and that, that, that was like, no brainer. I mean, how exciting to be called a Grand Slam champion. So, um, I, I, yeah, from from yeah, from always singles was was it uh, and doubles, um, but I but I think early on doubles there was more success coming on the doubles court uh, that that helped build the belief that I could be an accomplished singles player. Um, it was only really the last four months uh, of my um of, of my career before i retired that i actually let my singles go um that the last year that i played was 2000 i'd made a decision at the at the end of 1999 um that i 2000 was going to be my final season uh, my wife and i we we just got married we wanted to have kids um, start a family and and um, i didn't think that i could balance both a tennis career and being a, a husband, a new husband, and then a new father. So um, I tried, uh, my singles ranking was starting to waver a, a, a little and I didn't want to give up, you, you know, the partnership um, with Todd as far as not playing in those, uh, in, in mm -hmm. weeks um, to go off and try and, keep my singles ranking afloat that, you know, within a few months, uh, wasn't going to mean much to me. So, um, it, it really, I think my last, my last singles event was Wimbledon. I received a wild card. Um, and unfortunately I got injured, uh, at, at the beginning of Wimbledon as well. So I had to, I defaulted my first round singles, which is no, no great way to say thank you to the <laughs> all England club for the wild card, but I have to default my first round. I know, I know. <laughs> but, but they, um, they, they certainly helped, um, you know, nurse me through um, uh, the, the, the ensuing 13 days of, uh, of trying to win that final title with Todd. Yeah. But, that, yeah, that was my last one. So it was really four months where I just played doubles yeah. and I hated it. Really? To be honest, I, 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 I could not. Thank goodness <laughs> I was playing singles and doubles every week because um, there was no way... Uh, after what I'd played, I had an 18 year career. There's no way that I could have just played doubles. Uh -uh. What makes you say that? Oh, I mean, I, I, I would, I'd turn up at tournaments and, uh, um, like I, I didn't, what was I practicing? Mm. Like I, here I, here I was, you know, generally would train for events. Um, uh, I, I would get on the singles court and you'd practice your singles. Yeah. Todd, Todd and I, the Woodies, um, because we played singles week in, week out, along with our doubles, we didn't actually practice a whole lot of doubles-only drills. Yeah. Um, and that's probably why both, I think, Todd and I, over the years, um, 
we, we really bristled when we were coined double specialists mm. because we, we never specialized in it. We singles every week was, was it. And, uh, um, maybe at Davis cup ties were, were the only time that we, um, maybe if Nuke and Roachy or Neil Fraser before, um, Nuke and Roach, um, took over the Davis cup, maybe they would mention to us, you're just going to be playing doubles here. You can maybe, you, you know, just chill out with the singles this week because we've got uh, Rafter or we've got Philippousis, yeah. we've got Hewitt, we've got Stoltenberg. Yeah. We've got so, so many others that we could choose from. Um, and, and then that allowed us to practice our doubles. It, and we enjoyed it, but I just, I would not have been able to do it week in, week out. I, I ended up just practicing like an hour a day because I was so bored I was like, how do I practice doubles? Um, and, and then I, I got segregated. I, I was actually guys that I used to hit with and play singles or practice singles with. They wouldn't really practice with me really? in that, those last few weeks because they were like, oh, you're not playing singles this week, Woody. Um, you're just a doubles player now before you retire. <laughs> so it was just kind of weird. And I had so much time up my sleeve. I, I didn't like it. Hence, my last four months on the tour <laughs> playing doubles wasn't wasn't some of the brightest uh, moments. <laughs> but that that last year, interestingly, you say that was the year that you sealed that career slam in doubles with Todd, where you won that elusive French Open title in um, in yeah. two thousand, and you also won that Wimbledon title and and runner yep. up at the two thousand Olympic Games. So it's it's interesting you say that, but. Talk us through that that French Open as well. And we're getting to the start of the partnership in your early doubles career, but mm. that that French Open, it would have been such a relief to finally salute there in in Paris and and say that you know what I've won all four slams in mixed and now men's doubles. Yeah, uh, uh, look, it, it was um, it was a a, a a tragedy that was un, unfolding. Um, uh, me personally, I I thought. Uh, one of the that we would win Roland Garros a heck of a lot earlier than what we did. Yep. <laughs> Nothing like going down to the uh, dying seconds of a career to win the you know the, know. the, the final jewel in the slam. But I I, I really thought that um, I, I mean because I grew up my, my first years away uh, I, how I learned the game um, was travelling to Europe and developing my my skills on clay. So I, I really loved and enjoyed, um, even though it was uh, uh, sometimes mentally and physically it was a beatdown. But I, I just, I really thought that uh, the, the Todd and I would have won Roland Garros earlier, and and I don't know whether that maybe put more pressure than what uh, was needed um, on on me, on myself, and on us. Yeah. But we. Yeah, so many, so many times we, we, uh, you know, we're the number one seeds. Um, uh, <laughs> we, we just oh, abysmal matches um, at Roland Garros, and uh, you know, look, maybe heading into that last year, may, maybe what worked was might have kind of come to terms that it's possible that we might not win Roland Garros. Um, that that might have been the key. Um, uh, you know, Todd and I, I think when you're in that situation, having won as many times as we did, and, and obviously towards the end of our, uh, my career, uh, of the career of the Woodies, that, you know, each tournament that you win, you, you know, you get, you get um, 
reminded by media uh, and, and you do your own little history search as well, yeah. you recognise you, you're up the top. Um, yeah. you, you know, people are talking about us, uh, one of the one of the, the best teams ever. And uh, But I think Todd and I, we're students of the game internally with our, with our coach, with our trainer, between us. We pretty much knew, you know, how can you be considered one of the best in your sport if you don't win all of the majors? So that that was biting at us um, as well. But as I said, I, I think I entered that year. Uh, I knew my wife was pregnant. Um, I had to keep that quiet. Um, I, I it was my, my I was there on my own. It just was a very low key Roland Garros, yeah. and we survived uh, i mean we literally um got through scraped through a couple of matches early on but the quarterfinals we it was one of those matches that i think in the past we would have lost um but we uh it was on court two uh i, I even remember that it was against uh, two czech guys we just got off to a, a slow start we lost the first set we were down a break in the second and I think uh, the, the other, if I remember correctly, the other pair had uh, um, uh, had br uh, game points to go um, to go something up like five two, uh, a set in five two, and uh, miraculously, <laughs> and it shows I think that you know what Todd and I were about. You know, you didn't give up on we didn't give up on ourselves too easily. Yeah. So even though we were looking down the barrel at the time. Um, uh, Yuri Novak from the Czech Republic had a high volley and he went to hit it through me probably one of those things where he, he should have put the ball away and not not tried to go through me yeah. uh, but he went through me and I, I made this uh, uh, yeah, reflex volley uh, I don't know how I made it but I made it it went shot back so quickly through him he just stood there stunned uh, and, and I think that really was the, the turning point in, in that particular match. Todd and I just, it was just something, the spark that we needed uh, in that match. We turned it around so quickly. And then once again, I think we, once we survived that match, it just, the jigsaw, the, maybe that belief started to come together. Um, but look, I, well, I, I know once we made in the final against San and Stolli and Paul Harhouse, the with Paul Harhouse, our old Dutch mate, we, I mean, we played so often against he and Jakko Welting. They, they were our great competitors. So to see Sandin Stolli up the other end was difficult, but we knew Sandin didn't have the experience of Paul. And, and I know as we walked out onto the court, Todd nudged me and, and said, have a look how, how pale Sandin Stolli is in the face. And uh, I looked up. Because I was panicking, and I know Todd was panicking, because <laughs> this was our last opportunity. But thank goodness Todd noticed that, and I looked at Sandin, and he—it it was like he'd, you know, when you're ill and you go all pale, and you know you're going to throw up. He looked like he was going to throw up. <laughs> so it was like, oh yes, yes, someone's more nervous than us. Um, and and literally the first uh, few balls in the warm up that I had to hit to Sandin. He, he never hit a ball over the net and it was so comforting and reassuring. Um, 
and you can never count on a win before the first points even begun, but it started to feel pretty damn good uh, at that moment. And uh, um, But look, uh, the last I know the last game, I did not want to hit a ball. I'm glad that Todd served uh, the match out. Yeah. I, I made sure that I stayed out of the way <laughs> and, uh, and we won it. So, um, yeah, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of celebrating just internally, um, yeah. uh, a lot of phone calls um, that we made to, you know, our friends and our, our former coach who had guided us for so long. And, um, yeah, uh, brilliant. Amazing. And and you talk about, Todd, that, that Woody's partnership, it's so, so prevalent in tennis history. And um, I, I think when people study the game, as you said, the students of the game are always going to look at the Woodies as one of the greatest doubles pairings of all time. Talk us about... Or t- talk to us about how the um how the partnership came about and how the relationship blossomed and and do you guys still speak regularly today? Well, the easiest one is to, to talk about the you know how we began uh, yep. and uh, I was was aware of of Todd. He's five years younger, so generally you know what happens through the generations uh, with Australian tennis the 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 uh, the, the ones that are involved or um, current you're always aware of who's coming up, yeah. uh, the juniors. Uh, I was aware of Todd Woodbridge, Jason Stoltenberg, Richard Fromberg, Johan Anderson, uh, I think Shane Barr, Jamie Morgan. There was a bunch of them coming up, coached by Ray Roffles. And uh, uh, Todd Todd had the same management company as I did. So that, they'd, uh, they'd said to me, you know, keep a watch on Todd, uh, you know, help him along. I, 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 knew, I knew him. A little, but I didn't know him that well. Um, and I, I was in this partnership with John McEnroe, which obviously, you know, laid the foundations for me um, to achieve what I did um, on the doubles court. Um, a phenomenal time. But I, I was so distressed when he sat me down eventually and said, I'm not going to be playing doubles. Uh, <laughs> it's not that you're a bad partner. But I I want to concentrate on my singles, yep. and I'm not going to play doubles as often anymore. And I think that's uh, a detriment to you. But you you can still achieve so much in this in this sport, um, not just as a singles player, but as a doubles player. And he rattled off uh, along the lines of: you need to find an Australian, you need to find someone a little younger, you need to find someone who is a right-hander someone who plays singles and doubles every week like yourself and someone that you can represent your country in some of the biggest matches that you will play outside of Grand Slams, which is Davis Cup. So I'm sitting there going, you know, if I, I, why didn't you tell me to bring a pen and paper because I (laughs) would have written all this down. I'm like, my my brain's operating 100 miles an hour. Like, how do I, I've got to memorise this. and it, and it was like, it was almost instant. Um, he described Todd Woodbridge to me. Yeah. Um, Todd was uh, finishing up his partnership that he that he developed in juniors with Jason Stoltenberg. Um, I'd heard on the grapevine that he was, you know, that they weren't probably going to play together uh, the following season. Um, and uh, yeah, so I. I, I think I, I threw out a couple of names to to um, John at the time, and he, he just kind of nodded. And uh, yeah, so I, I 
you, you know, kept my eyes and ears open. And, and uh, you know, eventually Todd and I, we played a couple of tournaments together. Um, I, I think that was at the end of 1990. And um, the first tournament, we didn't do so well at all. We, it was abysmal. Uh, the second tournament, we did a whole lot better. And fr from that very first match in the second tournament, we played together. Mind you, we'd only played one other match. We lost first round. We got we got our butts kicked so badly that we were thinking, yeah, there's, there's nothing really here between us. <laughs> But the second tournament we played, that very first match, we beat a seeded team. Um, there was something. There was something there. We just kind of walked off. We were like, you know, hey, this is pretty good. You, you know, um, we, we actually changed back to our original sides with me being the left-hander yeah. playing the ad court, Todd the righty on the first court, and it just flowed. It flowed for a number of other matches that week. Uh, we ended up losing in the semis, which, you know, wasn't a bad loss, but our the coach uh, and our trainer at the time they saw something on the sidelines as well um and and that's how it really developed besides the fact that i wasn't working with a coach at the time i, I had was coming off of an injury um i'd snapped my ankle ligaments early in 1990 so i was working on my general fitness and strength at the time so i i was working with a trainer todd was still working with the coach but was in looking to, to develop his physical fitness and strength as well. Yeah. So I had the physical uh, trainer, Todd had the coach, and that was the jigsaw. Yeah. And, and they developed our, our partnership, our team. Um, you, you know, it's, it's hard to say that it was just the two of us because, you know, I don't think we could have achieved what we did without our trainer that was with us pretty much throughout our whole partnership and now our coach, um, who was there for probably eight, eight and a half years of the 10 years that we played together. So, uh, um, yeah, that, that's how it began. And, and, it, and it just went, went really, really smoothly. The following year, we won our first Grand Slam, which was uh, the Australian Open. And uh, it just kept building. It just, you, you know, um, I think our, our coach at the time was pretty happy that, uh, you, you know, we were winning started to win tournaments and I, I um, uh, uh, speaking to him recently uh, a few months ago about this and he, he, he said he was thought he was going to go uh, or that he thought we weren't paying him enough money <laughs> because he'd made a, an arrangement with us that each tournament we won, when we travelled to the next tournament, he would buy us uh, at that stage, Todd and I didn't drink that much uh, at, at all, but we'd have a you know, celebratory um, uh, champagne so our coach would buy us a, a magnum of champagne at the duty free at some at some airport uh, as we were travelling, and of course the tournaments kept piling up. And uh, he, he said, you know, these these magnums of champagnes are not getting any cheaper. Um, so he, he said, how about it from now on? You guys are making more money in your checks at the end of the week. Why don't you guys start buying the, the, the champagne uh, bottles and, instead of me? So um, it, that it just Things like that. It just you know you look back and you treasure those um, yeah. th those odd moments, and uh, um, that really contributed to us, you, you know, having a, a great time together. Yeah. And do you guys still speak often, or not as much now that you're living so far apart? It's, it's probably one of the great greatest uh, um, quandaries right now. Um, you know, I, I can't. I, I wish Todd and I were in a in, in a better place. Um, we, we haven't. Uh, um, 
spoken for for some time. Um, you, you know, Todd's elected to um, move on and play with Jonas Bjorkman in some of the legends. That was who who you know look, he played with once I retired. He developed yeah. a a partnership with Jonas, and they they had success together, um, but but not anywhere near on, on the same level as the Woodies. But yeah. um, you know, Todd Todd is it's it's, it's uh, I guess maybe the Woodies perhaps uh, drifted. In the background for him, um, and and he's developing a, I guess his own brand. So it's d- disappointing for me because I would love to play. I still play the Legends events. Yeah, no. So it is know. it is kind of a like I'm doing now a head scratcher for me <laughs> to turn up and you, you know um, we're not playing together. Um, so um, you, you know there's there's you know bits and pieces uh, there and and which I'm sure we both share in but I, I hope someday uh, that we you know can be on better terms than, than where we are now yeah and I think everybody would love to see the woodies back on the same court as each other but um moving yeah. quickly to the um to how you mentioned John McEnroe said you want to represent Australia on the biggest stage. You're an Olympic gold medalist, a silver medalist, and a Davis Cup winner. What does it mean to, or what did it mean for you to put on the green and gold and represent your country on such big arenas? Um, well, I'll start with the Davis Cup one first, and I have a little story about the Olympics that happened in the last 48 hours who are with me. But um, uh, the, the Davis Cup, again, it's, you, you know, it's your education in yep. Australia. Growing up, I mean, to play, you're so aware of our hereditary, our, our history, um, and that was one thing that I aspired to do was to be good enough in singles and or doubles to play Davis Cup. Uh, when I when I had that first opportunity, um, uh, I was at a, as a, as an orange boy, which inevitably yeah. a lot of players go through that process as well. But I, I got selected. I, I won my first ATP tournament in Auckland, the New Zealand Open. And a few months later, Australia drew New Zealand in a zonal uh, tie. Um, and so I got Neil, Neil Fraser called me and, and asked, invited me along. And I, I panicked. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't, I mean, there was uh, Mark Edmondson, Paul McNamee, Peter McNamara, John Fitzgerald. Um, uh, that, and Pat Cash, huge uh, names, huge names for for me who hadn't done, hardly done anything at the time, uh, and and I didn't want to turn up on my own, <laughs> so like I coerced my dad to come along, and I never took my dad anywhere <laughs> to these uh, to stuff like this. Um, so I think he got the, the surprise of uh, of his life when when. Uh, I said, Dad, you've got to come with me because I don't know any of these blokes. <laughs> um, but it, it was that, that, that just opened my world um, at the time uh, to travel to Auckland and watch these guys practice uh, and go at it as hard as they did to play. This, this was practice and the far, four or five hours that they were pumping out to earn a place to, to wear the green and gold I mean, that all set it in motion. It made it made sense to me at the time. At the start of the week, it didn't make sense. Oh my God, why are they get why are they practicing so long? You know, yeah. we should beat New Zealand. You know, it shouldn't be too difficult. But the stories each night that I that I listened to, um, uh, you know, Peter McNamara at the time had been coming back from a, a severe knee injury, and 
he was working harder than anyone that was there. Um, so that that really that was my blooding, um, yeah. uh, so to speak, of of uh, playing Davis Cup. And I know the the very first time that I did get to play, um, uh, look at and at that time as well when I got in as a orange boy, that would have been like eighty eight, eighty nine. Um, and I'd mentioned earlier that I had an injury at the Australian Open, uh, nineteen ninety. Um, I didn't get selected. I didn't get another chance uh, until nineteen ninety three to play Davis Cup. Um, uh, you, you know, there was a period because Neil Fraser just didn't pick me, um, but but I did get an opportunity in eighty nine to play my first tie in France obviously against France, against Yannick Noah and Henri Leconte. And the, the beauty of it at the time was um, a good mate of mine, Darren Cahill, yep. uh, also from Adelaide. We grew up together. You, you know, we were going, you know, shadowing each other as we rose up through the ranks. And uh, it was, uh, I mean, when, when we got called into the room, into Fraser's room, and he told us that we were both playing um, and that, that it was a unique moment in Australian Davis Cup history because Fraze at that time I don't believe had selected two rookies to play their first match. He usually went with one rookie and one um, regular member. Um, so this was a huge step for Fraze. Um, but I know that when when uh, we left that room, Darren and I, we were like jumping up and down on top of each other as we were trying to get back to our room. We were yeah. screaming, just like the enormity of it. And uh, uh, again, the, the amount of phone calls that I made yeah. when I got back into the room, I, I mean, I literally, uh, I mean, I, I was crying. I broke down in tears as I called my, my mum and dad to say that I'd been selected. Um, uh, so... Just you know, great, great, great memories of of, of Davis Cup, and uh, you know, happy to happy to have been on a winning team yep. as well as a losing team. Losing, you learn a whole lot more. Well, not a whole lot more, but you learn a whole lot about your yourself and and your teammates. Yep. Great, great joys in in obviously winning, um, uh, and and uh, you know, ones that I'll. Never, never lose sight of. I have uh, my, my Davis Cup trophy um, up, um, just can, up there, oh, uh, that's, along um, with that's the two awesome. runner-ups as well. Um, that's awesome. So, uh, yeah, so I get get to uh, look at look at see those um, quite regularly. But um, the Olympics, I will say, you know, I played two two times and and uh, um, uh, came came out with a gold and a silver. But two nights ago, I was um, just sitting down late in the evening, turned on the TV, and they have an Olympic channel over here in the US yeah. um, that they um, it's just constantly showing events from uh, past Olympic Games. And uh, they were showing the opening ceremonies because obviously right now is, is around the time where Tokyo 2020 would be taking place. Yeah. Um, so I, I just happened to turn it on when they were showing the opening ceremony of uh, Sydney 2000. And it was getting down. Uh, they were they were down to the uh, to the U's because actually the United States were just entering. And I sat down, and my daughters, uh, one of my daughters, came past and said, "Oh, Dad, you know, I, I, this you went to that Olympic Games, didn't you?" I'm like, 
yes. <laughs> oh, is Australia, they've already come out yet because they're A. I said, no, when you're the host country, you come out last. So um, they'll be, we're coming up shortly. And she said, oh, wow. So she, she kind of went off and did her, was doing her things in and out. And uh, as was my wife and my other daughter, but I sat there transfixed. I, I, I was like a statue. Yeah. I was frozen and just taking it in. And when they announced Australia to come walking out, and I'm listening to an American, this is an American uh, um, coverage. So I've, I've never seen uh, coverage of, of the opening ceremony before. So I'm listening in to them talking. And then when they announced Australia, uh, I had tears coming down yeah. my eyes the other night. Yeah. I, I just, to, 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 like remember the the outfit, the uniform, um, and people coming by, and and of course then my daughter did come back in, and she was like, "Oh, it's your, Dad, is it, are they going to show you?" I'm like, "Seriously, this is America today. I have no idea where I am in the 500 team strong uh, that wow. we fielded that year." But ironically, they the camera panned over the team, and they they flashed it on Todd. And I, and I was standing right next to Todd. So I kind of caught half my shoulder, half my face, yeah. uh, well, my neck, I should say. <laughs> um, but there was a, 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 you know, just a great shot of Todd beaming um, just with, with the excitement. And, uh, you know, for me, Val, that really says it all about the Olympics, yeah. the fact that it still moves me yeah. as it did. Um, it, it was so special. And really to, to say that you've got two medals as well, it's just, it, it's, it, it's a remarkable achievement considering tennis wasn't part of the Olympics for about 70 years. And then in the two, yeah. in the um, two of the th first three, since it's return, you win a silver and a gold, which is, it's, it's absolutely phenomenal. And um, just, just quickly, um, aside from the doubles career in singles, you had some unbelievable matches, semi-final run at the um, 1996 Australian open, which is absolutely phenomenal. Within, my dad remembers one match of yours against Yannick Noah at the Australian Open. You won in five sets. He said it's one of the best nights he's ever had at the tennis set. Uh, do you have a, a, a singles match or even doubles match that you remember so well that you played um, that it's just, it just brings back such fond memories? Well, I, I, it's a difficult one because I think there are um, uh, matches, matches, plural, yeah. that were significant in on the singles court and on the doubles court. Um, it's hard to really just, you know, to locate one and, and say that they uh, was instrumental. Um, but uh, I think as, as for um, singles that helped shift me in such a, a positive direction to believe that I could achieve um, uh, a top 20 ranking um, and to maintain a, yeah. a healthy ranking in my career year after year. Um, I, uh, it was in, in 88, I, I had uh, got to Wimbledon um, and I was obviously handy on grass, which at that time it was real grass and which Australian never played well on grass. So, you know, uh, I, I, waited for the draw to come out. Um, I, I, I drew Johan Creek first round, which is a former two-time Australian Open winner at, yep. on grass at Kuyong. Um, 
and I ended up winning in straight sets, three three close sets, but I but I won. And that was like, wow, you know, um, people, when I got to the locker room, people were, players were, you know, like, geez, Woody, <laughs> solid. <laughs> um, uh, you know, don't, that, that's, that's, a, that's a big result. Um, yeah. uh, I think second round I played Ramesh Krishnan yeah. from India uh, again. <laughs> he, he he was no slouch on the grass, um, and I ended up winning in three sets. Uh, I, I won my next round. Um, uh, I, I think I beat an Italian guy, Diego yep. Nargisso, in the third round in straight sets, uh, and I got to play Ivan Lendl in the fourth round on court one. Yep. And uh, uh, cut a long story short, I, I mean, I lost I lost ten eight in the fifth, but I had match point at. Um, I think at six five or seven six in the fifth, um, and um, that he he served he served and volleyed and and uh, uh, I <laughs> it was it, I mean he was trying to serve and volley for most of the match um, I, I remember that but he I, I thought there might have been a chance at, at on match point that he might not have served and volleyed but uh, I, I got I know I got the return over and it was one of those floating returns that kind of just hold on to in the grass as it shoots yeah. through to you. It kind of, it, I, I don't know, it w- w- would have been about head high um, that it just travelled back over and, and he came steaming forward on a backhand volley. So it was in an area that, you know, when when you're not one of the better volleyers at the time, Lendl was not a great volleyer, um, it was one of those you could really make a mess of. So I was hoping, please, 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 miss, 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 yeah. you know, shank it, dump it, whatever. Yeah. But he came in and he damn well nailed it um, into oh. the corner. Um, and I I tried in vain to get another, it came to my forehand, but I was stretched almost at end range and uh, I, I put the forehand into the net. So I, I didn't get another chance to make him play another volley, which I was obviously my goal, but... Uh, um, the match point ended very quickly. It didn't didn't stop me from thinking at the time that I that, that I, I still had a chance to win. But uh, um, look, I, I ended up losing, and uh, the crowd was deafening. Yeah. Um, it was capacity on court one. Um, I realized I realized on the change events that people were wanting me to win uh, against. He was ranked number one in the world at the time. Yeah. So even though he might not have been the world's best grass quarter, um, uh, he was still the number one number one ranked player. Um, so to deal with all those emotions of playing against him, and then realizing that the crowd actually enjoy my game and the way that I was playing, um, and when I lost, it, I, I you know I didn't it, it, I, I just. I didn't uh, react negatively. Uh, to me, that was a victory. Um, that I pushed this guy to ten eight in the fifth. Mm-hmm. We played four and a half hours or something, and uh, I was feeling fine afterwards. Um, um, but I, but I, I really, I really feel that 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 one match at that time gave me the belief um, that I was heading in the right direction. Um, uh, look, I, would, I played, was playing doubles with Wally Masur that year at Wimbledon. We lost in the in the um, semi final, uh, sorry, in the uh, yeah in, in the quarterfinals to the number one seeds, um, Ken Flack and Robert Seguso. 
again after having match point. Um, we ended up losing, but I, I think uh, <clears throat> the confidence that I took from the singles transferred into the doubles that year. Uh, losing to the number one seeds, Flack and Seguso were, they went on to, I think, win the title that year. Um, but, but the ball got rolling for me. Um, I came over to um, <clears throat> to play the, the North American hard court events leading up to the US Open. My first tournament, I, um, I ended up um, beating uh, Stefan Edberg in the yeah. first round. Um, uh, I made the, I made the, um, you, you know, the semifinals of the singles there, beat John McEnroe along the way, um, and then got to the US Open two weeks later and beat John McEnroe again um, and reached the fourth round of singles. So it all, you know, that, that one loss, again, I don't want to make, you know, make light of it. It was a loss, but to me, it was a victory. And, and uh, that, but it just set me on my way um, as far as singles. So I think, I think really that was a, one of the more significant ones for me. And I think that's why you're a champion, Mark, because the loss actually springboarded you and you took lessons from it. You didn't like, obviously it wouldn't have been easy afterwards, but you know, the best players do take the losses um, as positives, and they learn from them, and that, and that's what I think made you such a champion. You I, ended up winning I, Wimbledon six I times. I could I couldn't wait to get back out onto the court. Actually, after that, yeah. you know, like I mean, I, later that night, my body is you know, it's just start to the adrenaline starts to ooze out, and so I was like, oh, the next day, you know, I was pretty sore, yeah. but. You know, it was the, I can't wait to get back and you know give me another chance at, at playing Kim. Uh, didn't matter where it was, and so that's how I, I think it. I really transferred it mm-hmm. to when I played Edberg in yep. my very next match. Uh, say four weeks later, after having some time off after Wimbledon, to I couldn't wait um, to, to play against these guys because I started to that just that that inner confidence, um, a, 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 like a quiet belief that um, I, I could do it. So, uh, um, you know, and, and it happened, happened with doubles as well. We, you know, Todd and I, we, before we ever won Wimbledon, uh, we, you know, we lost, we lost in the well, one year in the, uh, the year before we won our first title, we lost in the semis uh, against an American pair that generally we beat um, and had beaten several times. But on that particular day, I think we realised um that the possibility of reaching a Wimbledon final was distinct. And we, the idea of playing at this cathedral uh, event at Wimbledon um, got, got perhaps got the better of us. And I, and I I know I tightened up big time um, at the, in the late in the fifth set. And I, and and, uh, I think it was me that lost my serve at uh, four all in the fifth. And, and uh, I really, you know, I, I did take that match hard because um, I, you know, said to Todd that I felt it's like I, I gagged and uh, I caused the loss uh, right at that time. And, you know, as a partner generally does, you, you know, he tries to be uh, empathetic and, and, you know, no, it wasn't, oh, you know, I don't remember it. Don't you remember? Uh, do you remember me messing up here and that? And it was like, oh, but you know, we survived. It only made us, made me and it made the Woodies much more hungrier that once we got to the semifinals the following year, we were we were aware of what happened 12 months before 
and we just avoided it. We, yeah. we didn't get ourselves into that situation. And uh, um, so, again, it's, it's funny, you know, that I've, I've kind of relayed two matches <laughs> that we lost as instead of just winning. Um, yeah. you, you know, that's, that's a difficulty of trying to pick matches. But I think, that, you know, those two really did, you know, change and, and form, um, you know, a... Uh, the road forward for for myself. Yeah, well, look, you you only you only lost two matches at Wimbledon after said match, so uh, I think that's a pretty damn good record. So <laughs> six titles, a final, and a quarterfinal as well after that nineteen ninety two match. So I think you're uh, I think that loss did you pretty well there. But um, yeah. just quickly um on on Wimbledon before I ask you about what you're currently doing, just um just a couple of words on how on what that tournament means to you. Well, the first the first time I got there um, <clears throat> to play, I, I obviously had to to, to play qualifying. Um, but I, I, and and look, uh, you, you know, I'm sure you you may have heard this from several other players in the past as well. Where they used to play qualifying, where they still play qualifying, but in my time, the courts were a tragedy. They, I, I mean, they were just really like a the park, um, you know, and they just put lines and then here you go, you're playing qualifying for Wimbledon at this site. Um, so it really um, advertised serve and volley tennis. So uh, I, I navigated my way through successfully that very first year. But it, it was, you know, it was like I'd won Wimbledon because I got to play at Wimbledon. <laughs> so I, I felt like I'd already won it before I even got to play it. So to get to the grounds and to walk around it um to actually enter the gates it it was it was like the you know the, the the hairs on your arm and the back of your neck i mean it was just like a jolt of electricity like this is the place that you know as a youngster that i used to stay up uh during the winter watching our our greats win wimbledon and uh you know growing up in adelaide um so i'd 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 finally got there um, and, you, you know, just panicked. Clearly, I, I mean, I lost my first my first round there um, and panicked, probably panicked for a few few years there. But it, um, yeah, made, made uh, and with the Woodies, I mean, we're yeah. winning those, uh, you know, consecutive titles, um, you know, made the fourth round a few times in, in singles, um, did well in, in mixed doubles there. It was, it was like if you, it was almost like going back to saying, you know, if, even if you win a, a, a mixed doubles title, you can call yourself a Grand mm. Slam champion. And I think probably in those days as well, if you ever said you played at Wimbledon, people took note of that. Like, oh, you're a pretty good, you know, you're a champion tennis player then. You could, you could say that you are oh, played and, and not not throwing uh, or, or uh, belittling the other slams, even the Australian Open, Roland Garros and the US Open. If, you know, but if you said you had played at Wimbledon, people knew what that was. Uh, and uh, so to, to get through and, and win titles and... Uh, um, I, th- I, th- I think I, I knew how significant. Uh, well, I already knew that ha- how large it was and important. But I know in 1993, um, I, I, I walked away with two titles. I won the, the men's doubles and the mixed doubles um, that year. Um, but because I was still alive in um, both events in the second week, 
I noticed that it was pretty important because each time I left the locker room, um, I was escorted by security um, off the grounds to make sure that I got out of the grounds okay. And when I arrived, how they knew what time I was coming in, maybe they had the practice court sheets, but whenever I came through the gates that year, it's like there was security escorting me back into the locker room as well. Not that there were, don't get me wrong, there were, it's not like thousands of hundreds or even 10 fans were following <laughs> me, but it just, that's what they, they, it's, they do those silent things. They don't make a, it public, but you just, I knew that it was happening. And uh, I was thinking, wow, they, the Wimbledon officials, they're really making sure that I get to and from in and out of the club okay. And and so, um, yeah, that, that all of that stuff makes Wimbledon what it is, what it is, and that we all cherish and try to, you know, even now uh, when I get back there, um, you know, this is the first time in since 1987 that I have not um, uh, been at, at Wimbledon. So, wow. um I'm still trying to, you know, still in honour, wearing wearing my uh, the bands, the Wimbledon colours, uh, for maybe another week. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's a it's a neat place. Yeah, it's it's one of my dreams. I've never been, so I'm I'm absolutely desperate to get over to Wimbledon. It's the one the one place I'm really desperate to go as, a, as a, for a sporting event anyway. Um, but just um on on what you're doing now. Um, I read recently that um you've headed up a players board to try and give players ranked outside world number 350 a voice on um on the ATP tour which is a great initiative because of recent it's come out that a lot of people haven't really been doing much for the players ranked lowly in, in the ranking so this is kind of maybe a triple edge question but um uh, talk us tell us about the about that panel and tell us about how you think the inequity of the pay can be fixed and who the onus is on to actually fix the pay gap between the top and bottom players. Mm. Yeah. Well, so, um, you know, part of the, part of the work, uh, apart from commentating, um, you know, still at, at some of the slams, yeah. uh, some of the other work I'm doing is with the ITF um, and they, they're the caretakers of Davis cup, uh, fed cup, the Olympics. And they also uh, take care of the world tennis tour, which is their, um, uh, the futures level. They, they were. They used to be called the the futures, um, but now the World Tennis Tour. Um, and I'm on the board, um, so I, I work pretty closely with each of those areas. Um, and, and, and I'm on my second term with the ITF, and I, um, at, at, at a variety of board meetings, you know, issues were coming up in regards to um, pay. Um, uh, prize money for those for those players at that level, um, and certainly I think it, it became a bigger issue when the ATP um, uh, changed their direction. Um, uh, probably a year and a bit ago, almost two years ago, they made a, a change in the ranking um, as, as far as who they deemed professional. Um, so they, they virtually just drew a line between. Uh, I think it might have been about two fifty to three hundred. Um, and said, we're going to take care of these guys, the top 250, and the rest we don't think are professional. Um, so, you, you know, kind of it got all lumped over to the ITF. Um, uh, and, and a lot of those future-level tournaments, they're, they're, not, they're not independently owned or run. Um, it, it's a, 
a lot of them are, are, are owned by fed, national federations, associations. So Tennis Australia, they, they run a, a handful of them during the year um, uh, domestically, uh, as a lot of other countries do. Um, so I think when, when this happened about two years ago, um, we were getting a lot of, or the ITF was receiving a lot of uh, um, uh, flack uh, that, you know, not that those, that player at that level wasn't being looked after enough. Um, and, and so one of my suggestions, and, and I, I don't want to say that I'm taking ownership of it because I'm sure that it was probably tabled at some other stage, uh, but it just perhaps wasn't acted upon. Um, but I, I suggested that instead of, because, uh, it, look, it can be a bit chaotic. Uh, you know, the ITF is made up of 200-plus nations, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and you've got so many players in from each of those countries, and, uh, uh, you know, if they're sending in their ideas or touching base with uh, various board members and, and committee members, and uh, it, can, it can get a little confusing. Um, so I suggested that, you know, why not start a, a committee, a player panel, very much like the ATP has, the player council, which every category, uh, ranking top 10, top 20, uh, doubles, top top 100, they're all represented on that council. Um, and so uh, it was acknowledged um, uh, at a board meeting and uh, something that's just developed over this period. Um and so, yeah, just recently announced at the beginning of June, um, they're each region um, of the ITF. So there's North America, South America, Oceania, um, Europe, uh, and, and so on. So each each were to have a representative um, on, on this player panel, uh, which I'm chairing. And uh, albeit about it's been a long time since I've had to go through futures level. Um, <laughs> and uh, and that's the thing that I, that, that I was concerned about is whilst it's a good idea to have a committee and you want to hear from these players, that's, that communication is always important. Um, but it, it's exactly it, futures. You, you want those players yep. to just be at futures level, hopefully for the shortest time possible, because we all want them to be going in this direction to be able to transition up to challenges and then from challenges up to 250s and 500s and ultimately thousands and to play at the slams. Um, so would these players be at that level long enough to remain on a committee for 12 months or so? Um, but look, we've, we've uh, it's, We've come together. Um, it, it's we've we've had a number of meetings, and and uh, certainly, you know, the problems with COVID right now have have um, accentuated some of the um, the concerns. Um, I, I must say that I, I've been mightily impressed with these players. Um, uh, you know, there's there's a a fellow who, who's ranked twelve hundred at the moment. Uh, you know, none none of them are, are ranked inside uh, the, the ranking band that you suggested uh, that you, that you mentioned. Um, but they're they're just super concerned right now yep. uh, with with COVID. Um, that that's really the topic of. Um, they all want to get back to playing tennis, uh, ASAP, but they are very concerned about the safety um, and the protocols that are going into pl- that. that are in place um, and, and again there is an inequity on the tennis tour the slams uh, to the ATP down to 
this world tennis tour level. Mm. Um, prize money is one of them, but but also pro- protocols. I mean, uh, you know, I think some players at slams and and uh, tour level they'll be possibly tested every two or three days if we get back to playing tennis um, next month, um, where you know possibly those same protocols might not be um, as as often um, at, at the World Tennis Tour. The onus, the onus is going to fall on to the player themselves to make sure that their safety um, is, is paramount. Yeah. And, uh, um, and, and look, and, and their, their, one of their big issues, obviously, is their costs. I mean, these guys have not been earning money, um, you know, since March. Um, prize money is, is not at a level that, that uh, I'm comfortable with. Um, I, w- I would love to see, you know, their, their prize money pool yep. lifted up. Um, you know, it's pretty sad. I've been off the tour you know, I first uh, travelled uh, in 1983, um, and and there were future level tournaments that I think have the same amount of prize money to this day. Wow! Um, and yet, we're at, we go to Grand Slams, and you know the the winner's check is is it is it like four, mi- four two, million Australian? Two, four that that that's the the winner's check. Yeah, four million Australian. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it, it is ludicrous. Uh, um, but I yeah, look the 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 ITF. That's that's why they um, have have put this committee in place. Um, you, you know, Dave Haggerty's the president of the ITF, and I, um, you know, I, I believe that he has he's wanting to make changes uh, to in, in an area that perhaps uh, you, you know changes needed to have been made. Some time ago, it, it hasn't been, but attention's been given to it now. Um, I, I think they they certainly need players from the elite level um, stand up and be a voice and say that we need prize money to go down to the lower ranked players. Yep. Uh, we need we need the the federations um, who um, who are putting on a lot of these future level tournaments that, you know, perhaps they, they also, um, you know, maybe pump a bit more money in so that players, I mean, and and this is an issue again, COVID and the prize money, I think are related right now. I mean, these players are really worried that uh, because COVID will increase um, safety measures um, that, that some players, if they, if they do return to tennis, they, they'll have to, uh, um, you know, be very concerned about how they yep. get from the airport or from the train station to the player hotel or to the site. Now, normally, they'd probably catch public transportation at that level because tournaments don't have transportation. They don't have a car no. to come and pick you up. So they'll have to be concerned about, you know, how they're getting from A to B. Um, so travel costs increase. Um Hotels, players at that level, they're used to, to rooming two or three or four to a room. Mm. The safety protocols now, they won't be able to do that. Um, so, again, their, in, their, their costs increase, and yet what they're playing for, prize money-wise, is not increasing along with it. Um, the ITF have, have made a, uh, put out a player fund um, to, to the federations. Um, you know, it's, not, it's not a large number 
uh, it's not it's not on an equal level as to what the ATP you know put out and the slams what they what they um, uh, put into a player relief fund, but it is something. It is to help players um, from uh, you know that are, that are involved with their federations, and the federations will disperse that funding. It's it's uh, going on right now as a way of you know hopefully the players at that level, which there's a whole lot of. But they they recognise the ITF are trying to work in a positive way to help them. They're recognising that you know the difficulties that everyone in in all sports, but in our tennis world, is undergoing right now. Yeah, it's it's a very difficult one at the moment, and fingers crossed we can rectify that. And we love the work that you're doing on that. And just a couple more before we do let you go. It's kind of like a yeah. quick fire thing. So, should the US Open be going ahead this year? Just yes or no. <laughs> If you'd asked me three weeks ago, I would say yes. I would really feel it is going ahead. Yeah. But as we're getting closer, uh, I, I'm I'm doubtful. Yeah, I I agree. No. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't look very good at all. Best place you've travelled for tennis? Uh, to home. Yep. Fair but enough. To, to 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 Adelaide, I didn't get to didn't get to to do that a whole lot. I mean, at least we had a tournament in Adelaide, so that was always a thrill to go home and be able to play in front of my family and friends. Uh, you know, that that really didn't get to see me a whole lot. So it was always I loved playing at home in Australia, but probably the best tournament was still still Wimbledon. Yep. No, definitely. And uh, finally, worst place you travelled for tennis. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be the other end of the spectrum, yeah, doesn't there's it? There's always um, one. You, you know, uh, I, I, look. I, I think I think tennis players sometimes where uh, they'll always come out with a with a something negative. You you might be in such a uh, an incredible city, um, and but you get you get into this hotel courts, hotel courts, because you might not speak the language yeah. you might not like the food of that uh, in that country um so play, tennis players are great at having a bit of a moan um <laughs> i um oh boy i i um i don't know i i don't know if i could pick one that that, oh. that i've got like these horrible memories of because i I think i'd like to believe that if i return to that same place that i thought the first time um, and I'll throw in Lisbon because I know I went to yeah. play a tournament there when I was in the throes of trying to transition up. I was yeah. playing a challenger. I, I was like, Lisbon, what, what am I going to do in Lisbon? And I literally did not see anything in that city for four days whilst I was there. I just hold myself up in the hotel room and watch CNN the whole time. I ended up leaving. I never saw a thing. I wouldn't have probably for years, I, mm -hmm. I never would have said, you know, uh, Portugal was a place to go to, but I have subsequently been back there several times. And I think I'm looking at myself going, what a doofus was I <laughs> when I first went there that I never went out and they're great people. Yeah, It's a great food town. They've got some amazing mm -hmm. sites. So I'd like to believe if there were some really bad ones, like when I went to Lisbon, I've actually gone back and thought, you know, it was probably because I was a little immature at the time and, yeah. uh, you know, just so tunnel vision that um, I didn't explore. So um, I'll, 
I'll pass. Yeah, oh, that's fair enough. You're the only one that's passed. <laughs> Most have said either China, Uzbekistan, India, and we had Darren Cahill on. He said Peru was uh, was quite bad for, for a Davis <laughs> Cup tie. He, so. he only said he only said Peru because I I, I think I, I I was supposed to go to that tie and I pulled out. <laughs> <laughs> And because I, I think we were speaking about like, oh my God, who wants to go to Peru to play Davis <laughs> Cup? Because you know how passionate they're going to yeah. be with their sport. And um, I just had never been to, you know, to South America either. So I, I know uh, I, I pulled out on that Davis Cup tie. I didn't go there. I, I probably should have, but I, I dodged it. <laughs> oh, very nice. Very nice. Mark Woodford, It is. it has been an absolute pleasure of mine. Career highlight to chat to you and um, some of the things you've done, 17-time Grand Slam winner, semi-finalist Australian Open, top 20 singles, world number one doubles, Hall of Famer, Olympic gold medalist, silver medalist, Davis Cup winner. You've won everything, Mark, and uh, thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hey, Val, thank you. And, and thank you, thanks to you as well. I mean, uh, you, you know, to, to be able to speak to some of our great Australian players and, uh, uh, you, you know, because... You know, just having a having a chat, it goes a long way at this uh, this the crazy times that we're living in. So uh, it, it means a lot to me, and, and and thank you for being in touch. No problems at all, Mark Woodford. And, and what is that Richmond uh, Guernsey behind you? Oh, I've got a I've got a lot behind me. Just a uh, couple of premierships in the last three years. So I, you know what we had. Yeah. I, I'm 24 years old, so we we didn't win anything until I was 21. <laughs> so I thought the day that we do win one. I'm going to I'm going to spend a lot of money on merchandise, and that's what I've done. <laughs> Good. Had I known though that you were a Richmond fan when we were working together in the commentary, but yeah. I don't know if I would have freely come in there. <laughs> that's all right. I would have worn my, my Carlton Guernsey instead. Yeah, I would have just sprayed you before you came in with that. <laughs> hey, good on you, Pete. Good, uh, good to see you again. Thanks, Abe's Mark. Mark Woodford there joining me on Breakpoint Podcast. Joel, I, I was so upset that you couldn't be there for that chat. I was, um, it, it was honestly one of the biggest thrills of my my uh, media career to to sit down and interview um, to interview Mark. And we've had Todd Woodbridge on the show before, but um, that one was that one was just so in depth, and he just went through so many different things and all these different feelings about certain uh, certain tournaments and and so on and. It was, um, yeah, it was, it was a real thrill for me to chat to Mark, and he's such a wonderful guy, a wonderful custodian of tennis globally, and still does some great work in, um, in the media. And he coached one of our favourites, Marinko Matosovic, as well. I forgot to ask him about that, but yeah. um, next time we have him on, we'll, um, we'll definitely have uh, ask a throw, throw in a Marinko question there because he's one of our favourite players. But Joel, um, without further ado, we have gone very over time from what we usually do, but um, should we get to our Benoit of the week, uh, focusing on our favourite Frenchman and, and the highs and the lows that a tennis player can have during a week or during a certain month or tournament or what have you. Um, but Joel, I'll let you take this one because um, it, was a, it was a fairly significant one. Yeah, it was. And, um, well, I mean, let's be honest, this man has probably been Australia's answer to Benoit Pair in, uh, in many respects. But, um, yeah, look, um, this week's Benoit of the Week goes to Nick Kyrgios. And luckily, I think it's I think it speaks volumes about how far he's come, Val, that um, it's a positive Benoit. Because yep. I reckon had we done this segment back in the early days of Breakpoint, we would have been giving out a lot of negative Benoits to Nick Kyrgios, maybe one every week. Um, but it's got to a point where, obviously, as we know, we've spoken about it a lot. Um, the guy's been very, uh, very outspoken during the COVID-19 pandemic. And thank God as well, because he's kept the whole tour accountable. Um, yep. 
And you would have to say the people that he's kept accountable, probably a lot of the time haven't really got anyone keeping them accountable. So someone had to do it. And uh, of course, as you said earlier, uh, Val, Nick has pulled out of uh, the US swing, including the US Open. Um, and he issued a really stirring message uh, as to why on social media. I think it was Sunday morning, um, Australia time. And uh, we've got a little uh, little clip of it here. So we'll just play a little bit of it and uh, then we'll have a chat a bit more about it after. No one wants people to keep their jobs more than me. I'm speaking for the guy who works in the restaurant, the cleaners, the locker room attendants. These are the people that need their jobs back the most and fair play to them. But tennis players, you have to act in the interests of each other and work together. You can't be dancing on tables, money grabbing your way around Europe or trying to make a quick buck hosting an exhibition. That's just so selfish. Think of the other people for once. That's what this virus is about. It doesn't care about your world ranking or how much money you have. Act responsibly. Nick Kyrgios there with his statement. And Joel, it was um, it was brutal, but he uh, he just, you know, he lets have it. And, you know, I was thinking he would make a really good uh, media manager for a player or he'd, get, he'd be a really good agent yeah. um, because he keeps the common sense. And that's kind of what we want in our athletes. We just want them to make the right calls, don't make stupid mistakes. And, you know, he's used such wonderful vocabulary like spud, potato, peanut, um, in description, and, yeah. and what and champ, yes, God, went, oh, that is one of the funniest things I've seen on social media. And Kyrgios has probably been the most entertaining thing about tennis in 2020, and not even for his um, antics or not even for his exploits on court. So, um, yeah, he's been wonderful. And look, I, I couldn't agree more with that statement, to be quite honest. And he spoke about the money and the money or the hunger for money um, by the players and. It's fair enough because even Alan Perez said it a few weeks ago, tennis players are the most selfish athletes in the world. I'm not calling them that. That's just what she said. But Kyrgios seems to echo those sentiments. Yeah. And look, I have no, I have no doubt that there will be people out there calling Nick Kyrgios a hypocrite. And there still are. I mean, Borna Chorich, for one, was, you know, that, that's exactly what he did. But, um, you know, okay, if you look at his history, then maybe, yes, you could probably make a case for it. But, um, but has he you know, ever done anything as serious as this, Joel? No. no, definitely not. Definitely not. So that's that's a big difference. But um, you know, I, I just I really think it's important that um, someone has stood up to keep to keep the tour accountable. And it, um, you know, obviously it happens to be Nick Kyrgios. I don't think anyone should really hold that against him um, because it's really to to keep it short and simple. It's it's exactly what um, what the tour needed. Admittedly, mainly the ATP. I think the WTA have acted pretty responsibly during this whole thing, but yeah. certainly there's been problems on the ATP side of things. 100%. But, um, yeah, a positive Benoit for Nick Kyrgios. And, and look, I, I did a piece for the tennis menu and first serve. It was the same one. But um, saying that Nick Kyrgios, now it is time for him to walk the walk. Uh, sorry, and he's yeah. talked the talk. He's got the talent. Now it's time to really drive home the point of how good he is and beat these guys that have been slandering him in the media, such as Chorich, such as Team, all these other people. It's time for Kyrgios, and he's endeared himself to, to even his harshest of critics, myself included, that it's time for him to to really to, to go deep in a slam and maybe make a final, semi-final, and put in the work because he's going to have all of Australia behind him, probably for the first time since that Wimbledon run in 2014 where he made the quarters. 
Yeah, and he's gonna have he's gonna have a huge target on his back now as well. I mean, yeah. there's there's no doubt that um you know I, 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 clearly Nick wasn't I don't think universally popular um, even before this, but what he said he's gonna have a target on his back. Hundred percent. Um, I mean, it's pretty it's pretty clear that you know he's he's never really given a shit about about making friends. He doesn't really care who his enemies are, um, which I think is fine. I, I don't really mind that at all. I mean, it's it's an individual sport. I, I don't really think he's there to make make friends and. You know the, the old uh, Australian slang. He's not there to f with spiders, um, but um, yeah, no, I think. Um, and, and you know what? The other thing with Nick, we know that his potential is just absolutely endless. Yeah. Um, so you know, if twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one, even um, let's face it, probably probably be twenty twenty one. If that's the year where it all comes together for him, then great. Um, yeah. I, I really hope that happens. Yep. So do I. And you know, I, I think I've done a complete backflip on Nick Curious from the stuff that I've said in the past. But no, this year he he you can't really fault him for his tennis and for his um and for his real just sheer common sense really. And um, he's standing up for what's right. So well done, Nick Curious. Benoit of the week, Joel Frucci. Thank you very much for today's show. No, no worries, Val. I should be thanking you for that uh, fantastic interview with Mark Woodford. It was great. Oh, I was I was spewing you weren't there. I really, really was. It was it would have been great to have you on. But um no, it's very nice to see your face on a Tuesday as per usual. But um you can follow Joel on Twitter at Joel Fridge if you want to stay in touch with uh, with him and all the tennis news. You can follow me, VFebo ninety six and breakpoint on Twitter at Breakpoint Pod. Um, Instagram Breakpoint Podcast and Facebook at Breakpoint Pod One and also just search Breakpoint Podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, on Wooshka and on Apple Podcasts, where there, wherever you get your podcasts. I've been Val Febo, Joel Ferrucci on the other line. Have a great week, everybody. Big thank you to Mark Woodford for joining us on today's show as well.